Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Sharon, and here's where it gets interesting. Raise your hand if you want salon perfect nails for just $2 a manicure. Yeah, me too. With the Alvin June Manny system, you can say goodbye to expensive services that take hours and hours and love your nails more than ever. I would know I've been doing it for years. Get 20% off your first Manny system with code PERFECTMANNY20 at olivenjune.com slash PERFECTMANNY20. That's PERFECTMANNY20 at olivenjune.com slash PERFECTMANNY20. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where I speak with creative entrepreneurs, artists, and other insanely interesting people to hear their stories, learn about their molding moments, tipping points, and spectacular takeoffs. In this episode of The Unmistakable Creative, I speak with Mark Russell. Some people come up with projects that truly challenge the status quo. 
In an attempt to come to terms with his extremely religious upbringing, Mark teamed up with cartoonist Shannon Wheeler to write a comedic translation of the Bible called God is Disappointed in You. Listen in as he talks to me about his journey and his storytelling process. Today's episode of The Unmistakable Creative is brought to you by Cells. That's S-E-L-Z dot com. If you're looking for an alternative to PayPal that can be used to collect payments for digital products, physical products, and even services, Cells is a fantastic option. There's no programming, no special templates, or special themes needed. And they recently even added the ability to give your customers a pay-what-you-want option. Many of the Unmistakable Creative listeners are already using Cells and absolutely love the product. Mark, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thank you. Yeah. So, you know, I came across you by way of, of, of our mutual friend, Meg Warden. And the reason I came across you is, is that she had posted a book called God is Disappointed in You. And when I found out what it was, I thought, I have to talk to this guy. I mean, that sounds completely insane. He wrote a comedic translation of the Bible. Um, either he's somebody I have to know or he's going to burn in hell, maybe both. Uh, but you know, I was so intrigued by by the art form because it was such an unusual creative endeavor. So, you know, tell me a bit about yourself and your background and your story and how it leads to you waking up one day saying, you know, I have a creative project on my mind, and that creative project is to write a comedic translation of the Bible. Yeah, well, I grew up in a, a very fundamentalist uh, Pentecostal household. <laughs> uh, so, so in a lot of ways, writing this book was uh, it wasn't so much a a form of literature as it was a form of therapy (laughs) kind of coming to terms with the baggage that I had grown up with. Uh, but the idea for the project really came about, uh, at a bar. I, a lot of my life seems happens at bars. Uh, I, I was meeting with Shannon Wheeler. who's a friend of mine Mm -hmm. and we were just hanging out and he just asked me what I happened to be up to lately. And I said, oh, well, you know, I've been taking a few books of the Bible and condensing them down to like a few paragraphs each so I can, you know, tell friends what they're about. Because I had a lot of friends who never grown up with the Bible. And like yourself, were curious, but never really had grown up with it. So mm-hmm. out of the blue, he says, well, you should do the entire Bible and I'll draw cartoons for it and we'll have a book. And it never occurred to me before to, to actually turn this into a, a you know a whole book project. So uh, that's that's where the project was born. So, what's your background? I mean, are you are you a writer by training? Like, I mean, what what leads up to that moment? I'm very I'm always curious as to, to you know. I mean, you mentioned the religious household, but um, I mean, what else? Like, how do you get to this conclusion? Yeah, well, I uh, yeah, I've been a, I've been toiling in obscurity for a long time as a writer and a cartoonist, and I'm um, I've I've published. I used to publish my own zine called The Penny Dreadful back in the 90s and early 2000s. And I've also been published other places like McSweeney's. And, and, I, and I did some novellas about Superman, which is where Shannon kind of met me because he really liked my little Superman novellas. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he, I, I think he was just eager to work together at some point after that. And, you know, Shannon Wheeler is like one of my, my favorite cartoonists in the world. So when he offered, I, I couldn't very well say no. Well, I mean, talk to me about the earlier part of your career. I mean, like, you know, I think that the idea, you know, I had a woman named Danny Shapiro here, and she was telling me how working artists were something that she, you know, she wasn't exposed to until late. Like, you know, the idea that, hey, these books that you read and these movies that you watch are actually produced by people who make a living making them. And so, you know, I think that that's like we kind of say, okay, those are the careers for the hippies or the people who just happen to get damn lucky. You better go to school and do something practical. Uh I'm very curious uh, about the earlier part of your journey and, and the things that have led to you becoming a writer. Like, you know, what, what, I mean, what did that look like? And, and, you know, you, you, you mentioned a zine, you mentioned Superman, like talk to me about some of these projects in a bit more depth. Yeah. Well, I, I think there's a big difference between a, a working artist and a, uh, and an earning artist. Uh-huh. Uh, I've always been a working artist in that I've always really poured a lot of myself into my writing projects. I, uh, this is the first one I've actually stood to make really any money off of. Mm-hmm. Uh, but like I said, I, I started publishing my short fiction and cartoons in a zine called the penny dreadful here in Portland. And, uh, it was really just kind of things that I felt weren't really right for anywhere else. Things that were just too odd mm-hmm. or short or, um, idiosyncratic to really send off to any place that any sort of realistic hope of, uh, publication. And, you know, I, I, I had a day job. I still have a day job, but this was always my passion. This is what I did on my, on my own time 
whenever possible. And uh, yeah, I, uh, I put together a couple of novellas uh, about Superman. And in a way, all of my writing life has been in a, a kind of an attempt to come to terms with my, uh, with I think, with my religious upbringing. And even in the Superman novellas, uh, God shows up. <laughs> and introduces himself to Superman and tells Superman that, you know, he, he's kind of the son he'd wished he'd had. Instead, he got stuck with this sort of feckless hippie in, in, in the form of Jesus. <laughs> and at one point, he actually sends Jesus to go live with Superman, hoping that Superman will, will rub off on him. Uh, but uh, things do not kind of go as planned. And I, I'm actually, uh, now that the, the, the Bible book is done, uh, I'm back to working on the Superman novels, and I'm hoping to get them uh, rewritten as one big, big novel. Mm-hmm. Okay, so uh, there's there's actually a lot of stuff here that, that's really interesting. Um, you know, it, it, the, the notion, well, I love one that you mentioned that you still have a day job. That's really cool to me. Like, I think that that is something that people need to get their head around because, you know, by the time you guys are listening to this, we'll have kind of beat this idea like a dead horse. But, uh, you know, the Internet has perpetuated this mantra of quit your job, you know, go be, you know, awesome, be the four-hour workweek guy and all this nonsense, which is not realistic for a lot of people. But yeah. I love that this is actually, you know, normal for you. Like, you have a normal job, but you're still you know an you're still an artist yeah and you know i know i know a lot a fair number of people who uh are who make their living from their art mm-hmm. and i have to say the the they spend a lot of that time not creating art they spend a lot of that time worrying about money you know doing things to pay the bills chasing a lot of you know engagements and and checks to to so really the time i would be able to save by not having a day job would pretty much be consumed by all the other song and dance numbers you have to do to earn a living as an artist Mm -hmm. so i figured well i'll just stick with the day job and then just write on my own time and i can really devote that time to writing in my artwork and i don't have to worry about doing all these other things to pay the bills Mm mm-hmm yeah, I think that that's that's actually you know it's funny because that's really not a part of the conversation that happens when you listen to a show like this or, or you know the the conversation around the web, um, especially for so many of you who are connected to to me on Facebook and to some of our guests on Facebook. If you look at the news feed, it's like wow. Nobody does anything like nobody. Nobody. It, it seems like none of us are, are in day jobs and everybody's living these epic lives. But I think you bring up a really uh, a critical distinction to, to really understand that, hey, you know what? What comes with the territory of earning your living from an art is a lot of things that are pretty inconvenient and not that you know comfortable. Yeah. And, and really, it's kind of like, you know, living on the Serengeti or something. You have no idea when you're going to get the next check. Yeah. Uh, there could be a drought and all of a sudden, you know, you're going two or three months living on peanut butter until you get another paying gig. It's, it's not a lifestyle that, that appeals to me. I like the, you know, the steady paycheck and Mm -hmm. being able to take hot showers and (laughs) go out to eat and see movies, these sort of creature comforts I've come accustomed to. Yeah. You know, but so here's, here's actually, let's dig deeper into this. I mean, here's the thing in you, you've done that, but somehow you haven't let go of this desire to create art. Like you still embrace the the fact that there is an artist with inside of you. Uh, and, and then, you know, I see so many people who are like, Oh, well I don't have time. Or I, I, I actually, you know, I had a reader from the art of being, being unmistakable who wrote into me and he said, there's no point doing this or creating any art if nobody's going to consume it or I don't get paid for it. And I said, you know, you missed the entire point of the book yeah i don't i've spent 10 years basically cranking a zine out of my uh out of my basement Mm -hmm. uh hardly anybody read it but i don't think that was i mean i wanted people to read it don't get me wrong i'm not i'm not too cool for (laughs) attention by any stretch of the imagination but it wasn't really what drove me i just had these ideas and i had to get them out Otherwise, I would, I just, I just would wouldn't feel right about myself unless mm-hmm. unless I expressed them. I think that to really, um, to really embrace it as a lifestyle, you've got to like be willing to do it regardless of what sort of compensation you get. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that that's that's you know it, it's funny because. People see, especially you know, with the internet, it perpetuates this notion that hey. If I make art, I'm going to become famous. Uh, and I can tell you, I, I had a lot of those very similar motivations uh, in the early days of dabbling. It was like, oh, you know, hey, maybe I'll, I'll start a blog and get a book deal. And, you know, nobody came to me with a book deal. 
Um, you know, in the, in yeah, it's because you only ever hear about the winners. Yeah. You know, it's, yeah. The only people I ever hear about who bought a lottery ticket are the people who win the Powerball. <laughs> I don't hear about the other 10 million people who blew the rent money on it, you know? Yeah, no, that, that's, that's a really, really good point. I, I think that that's, you know, there, there's something to be said for that, to, to make art for the sake of making art. Um, you know, I always say that, you know, it, it's like art that rewards its creator long after the average person would quit. It, it's something that's admired, but it's not encouraged. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, it's, I, I think that um, art is just something you do because you feel the need to find your connection to, you know, the bigger con- connection to the bigger universe around you. Mm-hmm. And the... Um, Art as a career is just something that happens if you're lucky. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I would, I, I would agree. So let's do this. Let, let's talk specifically about sort of the craft of storytelling. I mean, the, the Superman novellas sound fascinating to me. I mean, as somebody who primarily writes nonfiction, I always admire people who can craft, you know, characters and and build storylines uh, around things that that you know, literally starting from nothing. I mean, it's. I think it's very easy to write nonfiction in comparison to to writing fiction or to, to storytelling like that. So, I'm really curious. You know, I mean, you have the blank page. How does how does something like a Superman novella come to life for somebody like you? Well, and it started when I was watching one of those old George Reeves TV shows, and I kept thinking. This is absurd. If I were Superman, I would, you know, there's a guy who uh, breaks into a bank dressed in a robot costume and, you know, befuddles the police. It's like that's the stupidest idea I've ever heard of because once Superman shows up, he doesn't know that your guy's stuck in a robot costume. He's just going to think you're a robot. Mm-hmm. He's going to tear your arm off. He's going to knock your head off, not knowing that there's an actual man trapped inside. Uh, and, and in fact, that happens in one of my novellas. He comes upon what he thinks is a robot and just demolishes it only to find out there was a, actually – it was just a costume and there's a, a, a burglar inside posing as a robot whom he's killed. Uh, but a lot of it then after that kind of dealt with Superman having these enormous powers uh, but just having an average brain, which mm-hmm. you know, incredibly dangerous combination. Yeah, he, could, he could destroy the entire world in five minutes. And yet he's just as prone to like throwing a fit and having a bad day as anyone else. You know, no, it, really, he kind of has become a, a, a meditation on on the consolidation of power. And in, in a lot of ways, I realized after writing the first couple that he is in many ways kind of a, a stand in for the United States after the Cold War. <laughs> he's got no real counterpart, no reason to to have all this power. Nothing challenges him. Somebody stands up to him. Or, you know, defies him, you know, and he will demolish them in 10 minutes and then have, you know, rest of his day to go have breakfast with Lois and, you know, go to pep assembly or, or do all these other things because nobody even comes even remotely close to being able to challenge him. So he finds very, these very petty ways to channel his power. And, uh, and it's not good for the people around Superman because you know, he, any little thing he does could, you know, to save somebody can kill five other people without him even knowing about it. And it's not good for Superman because he feels constricted because he feels like people are so fragile compared to him. You know, he, uh, if he skips a rock into the ocean, it can sink an ocean liner, you know, 10 miles away. And mm-hmm. he can't, it feels like every time he turns around, somebody's going to, to die. So it's really interesting to hear you talk about like the the way you develop characters, the way you tell stories. I you know I, I want to go back actually to to something you said in the earlier part of our conversation, and then I, I really want to spend a lot more time talking about God is disappointed in you, uh, which you know for those of you guys listening, that's the name of the comedic translation of the Bible. Um, and you know I know some of you are probably going to send me hate mail after this, uh, but I felt Mark's you know what I wanted to find out was the you know about the art behind this because I felt it was quite interesting, but. You know, Mark, what I'm really, you know, curious about it is, uh, I mean, you mentioned the religious childhood and the fundamentalist childhood, but maybe what kinds of art, what kinds of influences did you have as a child, you know, when it comes to art? I mean, knowing that, hey, you know what, maybe I'm not going to make a career as an artist, but it's clear that there's, there's this undertone of, hey, I am a creative person throughout your life from everything I'm hearing. And I'm very curious what it was like growing up in a household where you're, it seems like there's almost two con- conflicting sort of ideals. Yeah, my cultural exposure as a kid was very minimal. Um, in our house, we our books were primarily religious in nature. 
I did have a uh, Snoopy science uh, textbook, which I, I really enjoyed. But most of the, the literature was was Christian or were meditations on the Bible or were Bibles themselves. I think we had like five or six Bibles when I was a kid. <laughs> uh, so um, I think my cultural exposure mostly came through television and cartoons and I, I think that – and jokes, and I loved jokes. I, I, I owned probably about a – I had a library of joke books when I was a kid. And I think the joke more than anything is the literary form that has kind of infused its way into my soul. Like I, even now when I write serious fiction, it kind of follows the same pattern as a joke. Uh-huh. You know, for me, storytelling is joke-telling and that you have like this this sort of unusual premise – and then you you build up to like this sort of question, and then you answer it in a, in a completely unexpected way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean I, that that like now that you're describing it, I mean I've read half the book, and it, it pretty much that doesn't surprise me in the least. It's uh, it's it, so let, let's do this. Let, let's shift gears a little bit, and let's start getting into to sort of you know I mean you you one is is you know surrounding yourself with a working artist, like having a cartoonist like Shannon Wheeler. Uh, you know, how you connect with somebody like this, like where that happens in all of this. I mean, how did that, you know, come into play? But did you just, I mean, you said you were, you were condensing these stories from the Bible down, but I mean, did you just wake up one day and think, Hey, you know what? I have to do this. Like, and not only that, I have to make it a comedic translation. And then I want to, I want to, I mean, I remember my favorite thing when I read the book jacket, I was, or the back cover, I was like, Oh, the arcane language of the Bible translated into something that, you know, you can actually understand. And I thought, well, good. This is this is great. I have now. I, now I actually want to read it. Yeah. Um, well, for me, uh, I got started just because I had friends who uh, were Bible curious, had had no background in the Bible, and just wanted to know. And they knew that I had grown up with this uber religious childhood, so they they asked me. And so I I just got in the, the habit of kind of relaying like the book of oh well you know the book of Job is. Uh, it's a crazy, actually a crazy bet between God and Satan, and I would just surmise them in these ways. And I think the the really down to earth and comedic tone of it is just kind of the way I like to to talk to people. It's just uh-huh. kind of the way I, I relate to people. Uh, so that was very organic. Um, in 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 terms of doing the Bible, I I realized when I started doing the project that I didn't know the Bible nearly as well as I thought I did that what I had learned from my childhood was actually the 1% of the Bible that is useful to teach kids in church, you know, to keep them from, you know, smoking or (laughs) wanting to have sex with anybody. Uh, But I I didn't learn anything about the other 99% of the Bible, which is really where a lot of the actual value of the Bible is, you know. Uh It's the um, part of the cantaloupe you never eat right next to the rind that you, you get all the best, you know, nutritional value. And that's the same way with the Bible. I've, the minor prophets I thought were, some of them were just extraordinary. And there's a, all kinds of great little tidbits in um, the, the Jewish histories uh, that many of which we never even read in church. Mm-hmm. And I saw my, my, my mission then as to take this incredibly, dense and uh, hard to understand matter. And, you know, there's books of the Bible where there's, you know, 13 chapters of husbandry, of animal husbandry, and you got to like wade through it somehow to get to like, you know, the, you know, the, the one verse which makes sense of the entire book. So what I wanted to do was just take the books at their own, uh, you know, at face value and strip them of the uh, sort of arcane language and the, the inessentia and then retell the Bible as, if, as though I were talking to somebody at a bar. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, I, I love this. So uh, there, there's there's so much here. I, I do want to get into the reactions from the people, but uh, you know, would you would you mind conveying one of the stories uh, in the way you've told it? Because I think that that to me is, is really the essence of, of what you're talking about here. And I really that's immediately to my mind as you were talking about that. I said, you know, I need to have you tell one of these stories so that people can get a sense for how you've taken something. Because I'm sure there are a lot of people here listening who have actually read the Bible. Yeah, well, one of the books I knew nothing about going into this. And this is, a you know, after you know spending 18 years in a church um, is the story of Hosea. Now, Hosea was a minor prophet. 
which really is not that bad of a thing. I mean, it sounds kind of diminutive, but the minor prophets were just less less talkative than the major prophets. They just got their point across in fewer chapters, which is why we call them the minor prophets, which I think is a good thing. Uh, but anyway, Hosea was this prophet whose wife was always cheating on him. And his wife, Gomer, she would always be out, you know, sleeping with whoever was around. And he'd be in this town square preaching, telling people that they need to go back to following the laws of Moses and, you know, kind of, you know, abrading them for their, for their idolatry and their general lack of enthusiasm for being Jews. And, and they were every, no one would listen to him though. They were all snickering at him because they knew that while he was preaching, his wife was out sleeping with somebody. And sure enough, when he got done preaching, he'd go home and she wouldn't be there. So he'd have to go find his wife and drag her back home. And everyone would be, you know, laughing at Hosea as he, as they fought in the street. And at one time, even, and this had to be the all time point, low point of his life. Uh, he is the, his wife's lover had actually decided to enslave her and then put her up for sale. So Hosea actually had to go to his wife's lover. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. And buy his own wife back from this guy. And he still took her back and, you know, and, and she, every time she ran off with some other lover, she'd come crawling back and he, you know, they'd argue in the street, but every time he'd take her back. And one day he went out to preach in the town square and somebody just worked up the nerve to say, how can you possibly take your wife back after all the times she cheats on you? Why do you not throw her out on her ass? And Hosea just kind of shrugs and he says, well, you know what? my love for my wife is a lot like God's love for us. We're always cheating on God. We're always leaving him for some fleeting pleasure or some, some new religion. And yet, no matter how ridiculous we make him feel, no matter how much we break his heart, when we come crawling back the next day, he's always willing to take us back. Mm -hmm. 
And finally, the people understood what he'd been preaching about the whole time. <laughs> you see, th- that's why I wanted to have you tell that story. I, I, you know, it's it's. I, so l- let's do this. I, I want to talk about you know sort of digesting all of this material down. I mean, really, like like I said, I mean to me, what the real art here is is taking something. I mean, it's like you've taken Ulysses and made it understandable for the average human being. Like, and for those of you guys who have never read anything by James Joyce. Most of it is is kind of incomprehensible to unless yeah. you're like a genius. Yeah, that would be that would be quite quite a boast if if I could, I don't I don't think I could do that for Ulysses, but I I can do I can handle the Bible. Yeah, so so talk to me about about sort of the the actual creative process of of deciding. Hey, you know this is what's important. This is what I need to leave out. This is what actually matters, and this is how this story is going to make sense to like the layman like Srini who doesn't know the first thing about the Bible. Well, my process was pretty much reading the entire book on its on its own. I, I read one book at a time, and I would write that book after I read it I, instead of trying to do the whole Bible at once or, or individual verses at once because I wanted to really understand what this book was about. Um, and then I would, if need be, I would read ancillary sources, other books about the book. But I really wanted to look at it through the author's eyes. Like, what were they trying to say? Who were they talking to when they wrote this? And uh, then I, I, from that, I would find what was really essential. And I would basically just convey that as simple as possible. And then I would add back in details like dialogue or, or little scenes or little things that happen along the way or just funny observations about about what this means. Um, the hardest book to condense for me was, was the book of Psalms, which I don't know, you're probably not familiar with that, but it's a book of poetry, uh, actually songs. Um, David, King David written, wrote most of them and King Solomon wrote some and they, they um, were always trying to get into the music business and they had written hundreds of these songs called Psalms. But how do you condense uh, a book that's just 150 chapters of poetry, basically mm-hmm. 150 different songs. Uh, and th- I had no clue how to condense something so big and, and something that had no real linear narrative. But then it occurred to me that what the book of Psalms really is, is sort of like a greatest hit CD. It's, you know, all of David and Solomon's best songs in one, you know, convenient box set. And so then I just wrote the book of Psalms like it was like one of these late night ads for, a you know, an Eagles box set seat, you know, or something like that. And that, that really kind of like made the book come to life for me. So, you you know, I keep seeing a theme throughout your 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 journey here is, is that you've sort of pulled for, from other influences, other art forms and let them kind of shape how you make what you do and how you put what you do out into the world. And you know, I guess for me, the question would be, how do we do that? You know, how do we, how do we, how do we combine multiple art forms so that we can kind of express our own message or, or express what we're trying to do? Like what, what's your advice for people? Well, I think there's, I have basically, I think there's two basic pieces of advice here. One, you've got to have, I think, some affection for what you're writing. You can't write from a completely distanced, you know, dismissive standpoint. Otherwise it's not going to be very good and it's not going to feel very authentic. It's mm-hmm. just going to feel like you're, you're dissing on whatever you're writing or that you're, you're, it's, it's two dimensional. And I really felt that for the Bible. I really wanted to get, understand what was really meant. And I really wanted to find the parts that were, that I thought were valuable in this book and to give that to other people. Uh, the other part is you've got to learn to sound like yourself. Mm-hmm. You've got to be honest about the way you think. If I had tried to write rewrite the Bible uh, to sound like I was King, you know, King James, the King James version, or trying to sound like, um, you know, um, George R. R. Martin writing, writing uh, Game of Thrones, it would have been a disaster. My the way I talk to people is very casual. It's very abrupt, and I use pop culture allegories and um, analogies using the things around me in my everyday life. That's basically the way I communicate with people. So for me, it was just a question of finding what I loved about the Bible and then communicating it through the, uh, through the idioms that I use in my everyday life, just the way I actually speak to people. And I think that's what resonates with people. People want to feel like you're, you're being authentic with them, mm-hmm. that you're telling them something important and that you're telling it to them uh, in a sincere manner. 
Yeah, you know, it, that's that's interesting. You know, like authentic, I feel like is, is one of those words that we throw around on the Internet. And it's kind of like you don't really understand what it means until you experience it yourself. Um, either you experience it through somebody who's created something or you experience it in your own creations. Uh, you know, so that brings up actually two questions for me. The one is actually around humor. I mean, obviously this book is hilarious. I mean, it really, I mean, that's, that's why I, I couldn't, you know, I, I, when I sat, when Meg sent it to me, I was like, okay, this is awesome. I sat in a coffee shop and I, you know, I kept reading, kept reading, kept reading. And I mean, there were moments when I just laughed out loud. So I guess one question uh, around that is bringing humor into to writing because I feel that humor is sort of one of those universal experiences that it actually transcends every boundary, right? Like it, it breaks down the barriers of religion, culture, language, race, whatever it is. Like, you know, we, we all love to laugh, I think. Oh, absolutely. And that's that's a universal human experience. And I'm very curious how, you know, what are there things that we do to cultivate that? I mean, how does that play itself out in your in your other work? I mean, do you do stand-up comedy for fun on the weekends? I mean, what, is, what does this look like for you? And, and how do we bring that into our work? Well, I think I've always written in humor, uh, in sort of humorous tone, just because I think it's, a, it's an easy way to get people to listen who might not otherwise care. Mm-hmm. If, if you can uh, say something but say it in a way it's funny, you're much more likely going to get somebody to listen to you and to engage with you personally than if you just say what it is you have to say. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also think that uh, to me, humor is kind of like kind of like a, a stick of butter in the sense that I wouldn't want to just eat a stick of butter. But if you're cooking a steak in butter, then it's great. So it can't just be funny. It's It's got to be, you know, I like things that have substance, but then are kind of also funny. Mm-hmm. But but the funniness is just kind of a, a flavoring of what you're trying to say. Yeah, no, I, I think that that's, that's actually, that's a really good point, right? Because I think that, like, there's a sense of sometimes, you know, you can tell when somebody's trying too hard to be funny, and then they're not. Or, you know, if there's if it's funny, but there's just no substance, there's no point to any of it, mm-hmm. then I, I, you know, it's like eating cotton candy to me. Mm-hmm. It's not gratifying. So one other question around this, and then I want to start getting into sort of the 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 actual like you know post you know the reactions from the world. That's the part that I'm very curious about. I mean, you, you know, you mentioned working with Shannon Wheeler, who you know I, I know through our correspondence as a cartoonist for the New Yorker, and collaborative processes are always really interesting to me. I mean, they, like I think collaboration as a creative is is actually one of the most challenging things to figure out and to know okay this is the person that is meant to you know be your collaborator i mean i think any of you who who listen to our show know like sarah steenland is our artist and she she is hands down been one of the greatest people to collaborate with because she gets our world and she gets us uh and I think that that's that's always a, that's always an interesting issue because there's there's personalities that have to come into play, but then there's also, you know, creating sort of this cohesion almost creatively between the words and the illustrations. And I'd love for you to talk to us about that process. Yeah, well, Shannon was a great collaborator because I think me and him have a very similar sense of humor, and he's also very easygoing. Mm-hmm. So uh, I don't I never worried about offending him, and I never was offended by anything he said, but. Typically what we would do is I would write a book and then I would take it to him and I had condensed this book of the Bible down to maybe two or three pages and then he would have to condense my two or three pages down to a single panel. So he had a really hard job as far as that goes, but I think it worked well with his talents because he's very much about just getting right to the core of a joke, uh, cutting out everything that's extraneous. And he... um, and I, I think in that way he was a very good influence on me and in that I would take a book to him. He would draw a cartoon that was just really essential and really short and sharp. And in a lot of ways, it, I, I would write knowing that it was it, that I had to be as short and sharp in my dialogue and what I was writing to give him a fighting chance to do to draw something from from that down into a single panel. Mm-hmm. And, but, you know, we would, we would, he would give, make comments about the books and I would make comments about the cartoons. And sometimes he changes captions based upon my feedback, or sometimes I'd change the way I had written something based on his feedback. So it was very much a, a, an act of collaboration. And, you know, plus, you know, we, we, we drank a lot of beer, uh, (laughs) and, uh, just had a lot of great conversations about the Bible, uh, during the course of our, our collaboration. 
Very cool. Yeah, I mean, collaboration is always it, it's always interesting. I, I just you know I, I I'm always curious about this process because I see to me it, I think that we we underrate this because we've kind of gotten very individualistic in our in our endeavors. Um, but I mean, I, I look at what we've been able to accomplish by collaborating with artists, and I think. God, why didn't we do this sooner? Like it's it's amazing what we've accomplished as as you know a group of people collectively as opposed to individually trying to do something. Uh, well, let's do this. Let's let let's actually shift gears and and, and start talking about you know kind of the world. Uh, you know the response to the world. I mean, you come from a religious family, and you put out a you know a translation of the Bible called "God is Disappointed in You." So I mean, how does how did one how did your family react? How did the world around you react? I mean, how does the religious community? like respond to to something like this i mean i I remember thinking in the book i think you even wrote in the book i hope we don't burn in hell or something along those lines (laughs) yeah well i don't know i uh it's a good question because i i haven't really spoken to my family about the book uh (laughs) which is very strange to have written a book you know and not talk to your mother about it um but i i haven't done so because i know they i don't think they would they would be as appreciative of the humor in it as Uh other people are the religious community as a whole has been very good about it uh, they really embraced it i just had a great time uh doing a reading and and talking about the book at the first christian church here in portland and everyone seemed to really like it and most of the uh the reviews from even from christian presses have been really good uh-huh. in fact my, my favorite review was written um on this one christian press website and the guy who wrote the review clearly enjoyed the book but felt kind of guilty about the fact that he enjoyed the book (laughs) it it was very it was it was great he was just very sincerely struggling with the fact that he liked it so much and he was very honest about this and at the end of his review he said i think i know what it is that bothers me about this book it's that because of this book non-believers will understand the Bible better than Christians will. Mm-hmm. And to me, that was the most moving, validating thing he could have said about, about my book. Wow. That's, it's, it's interesting. Uh, I mean, I, I'd never thought of it that way, but yeah, I mean, that's, like I said, I mean, for me, like part of the challenge in ever wanting to read the Bible was I would open it up and I would think, what does this mean? It was so difficult to read. It was so troubling to me that I was. I just thought, you know, there's no way I can I can make any sense of this. Yeah, the Bible has its own sort of uh, barriers to understanding, largely because they, you know, a lot of things were included that don't really make sense to modern readers. Mm-hmm. They're they're written, you know, to for a civilization three thousand years ago, and often not even for the whole civilization, but just for specific audiences. And a lot of that gets lost in translation over time. Mm-hmm. It's I think it's really cool because I was expecting like you know when when you when when I asked you the question about how did the religious community respond I was actually very surprised by your response I think it's it's actually very cool that you've gotten such a positive reception from them. Like I would have imagined that you know people were going to be you know telling you guys you're all you're you're both going to burn in hell. Yeah, you know, that's kind of what I expected, too. I expected a lot of blowback. I expected, like, protests. Well, actually, I was kind of hoping for protests. <laughs> great publicity. And this sadly never happened. Uh, but, yeah, I was uh, I was prepared for a lot of anger. Mm-hmm. I, and my nightmares were that it wouldn't be uh, – it wouldn't be – sacrilegious enough to win over the non-believers and yet it would be sacrilegious enough that all the believers would hate it mm-hmm. sadly or i mean thankfully uh the opposite seems to be true that it's it's um irreverent and uh unhagiographic enough to appeal to people who've never read the bible or don't necessarily believe in the bible but it's still got enough affection and and sincerity to really appeal to people who love the Bible and have grown up in the, the Christian church. And I think that, you know, maybe I just wasn't giving Christians enough credit for being smart and funny. <laughs> so, I mean, so a couple of questions, one other question comes from this. I mean, when you went to the publisher, I, I'm very curious what a conversation like this goes like. I mean, you sit at the table and say, Hey, we've, you know, we're, we're going to do a comedic translation of the Bible. Are you guys interested in, in, you know, betting on this one? 
Yeah, well, it actually kind of went backwards. Um, this is a very unusual publishing story, but uh, the uh, the publishing company approached me. Wow. And and asked me if I would be interested in going with them because they thought the idea was so great. Uh, it was top shelf productions, which they, they primarily do comic books. Mm-hmm. But the, and this was really kind of a strange uh, book to put in their oeuvre. But I we decided to go with them because they've always done really beautiful production work on every book that they've done and that, and they're very oriented towards the writing. They, they have a lot of really great writers in their, in their stable. They, they publish a lot of Alan Moore's books. Uh, they, they publish a bunch of Jeffrey Brown's books and, um, uh, just, just, so I felt like I was in really good company by going with them and I felt like they would handle it well. Mm Mm-hmm. So uh, let me ask you this. I mean, do you do you see this becoming like I mean, if I were a kid in school and you handed me the Bible and you handed me God is disappointed in you, I think it's pretty safe to to know which I would choose. Yeah. Do, do you see this making that kind of an impact in the world? Like, do you think it, it could replace like, you know, I, I don't know, because I never went to Sunday school. And, you know, for those of you guys listening, please, you know, I'm not being offensive. I'm very just curious. Uh, I, honestly, I mean, could you see this replacing the Bible so that people who, you know, our kids are like, OK, cool. Like, I mean, it, to me, you know, like I said, I, until you wrote this book, I, you know, I'd always been curious. But now it's like, OK, awesome. Now I can read it. Well, I yeah, I um it wasn't so much that I wanted this to replace the Bible. Sure. But I definitely uh, was hoping that somebody would pick up my book, read it, and say to themselves, oh, that can't possibly be in there. And then go <laughs> grab a Bible and, and, and read it and then and read the passage for themselves. So I don't know if I want it to replace the Bible, but sure. I definitely think that people are better off reading this book first. <laughs> in fact, I, I um, we spoke to a few hotels about – getting rid of their Gideon Bibles and putting our, our book in the hotel rooms. So, so far, no takers, but, uh, but eventually I, I, I hope that somebody does that. Wow. That, yeah, that I hope somebody, Hey, if any of you listening to this own a hotel, right? you know, I've always, you know, between you and me, I've always thought I'm like, considering what happens in hotel rooms, I've always thought it was very strange that the Bible is in the, in the drawer. Yep. That's precisely why the Bible's in there. In hopes that you're gonna, let, you know, come to some, come to Jesus on prom night. <laughs> Never gonna happen though. Yeah, yeah. Seriously. Well, well, Mark, uh, you know what? I, I don't have a ton more questions for you. I mean, this has just been fascinating. I, you know, I wanted to have you on the show because this was such a, a sort of distinctive creative endeavor that that caught my attention. But, um, you know. I, I you know I, I think it's really cool that you're somebody who has a day job and yet you've produced an art form that clearly is is making its way out into the world, impacting people, reaching people, and you know I, I hope my hope is that listening to you really inspires people to tap into that. And I'm very curious, you know, we'll wrap with two questions. One, um, you know, we kind of asked at the beginning, but kind of, you know, the, the person sitting in their cubicle with that weird, crazy art project on their mind that seems completely unrealistic, um, that, that they can't see how it's going to come to life. I mean, what, what advice do you have for them? Take your time. Just do it on your own time. Get it right. Uh, the fact that you have a day job and you're not working against a deadline actually works in your favor. Mm-hmm. You can you can take your time. You can do whatever you want with that project. Uh, just do your best to keep your two parts of your life separate, not to let work bleed over into your personal life and drain the energy from your artwork. You know. I love that. I love that. I think that's fantastic. So one final question for you, and this is, you know, I jokingly say I finally figured out how to close the interviews with a different question uh, after hundreds of interviews when I was asking the same one. But uh, it's, it's kind of a similar question. But, you know, in a world full of noise, uh, how do you become unmistakable? Wow. I don't even know I'm sure I understand that question, but uh, <laughs> I'll, t- I'll take a crack at it. I think um, y- you become unmistakable because you, you – uh, are willing to be honest about be willing to be honest enough to be wrong about the world. Ooh, I love that. You, you you're willing to take a chance even though you might be full of shit. <laughs> well, I guess that that's the story of the art of being unmistakable in a book. I was willing to take a chance even though there are people who think I'm full of shit. Yeah, that's the, that's basically it. Damn. 
Well, hey, Mark, this has been really, really fun. I am so glad that Meg connected the two of us. Uh, yeah, too. I agree. Yeah, and uh, you know, I, I can't thank you enough for for you know joining us and sharing some of your insights with our listeners here at the Unmistakable Creative. And and you know, for those of you guys who who honestly, if you if you haven't read the Bible and you're looking for a, a sort of entertaining way to read it. The book is called God is Disappointed in You. Uh, you know, Meg sent it to me and, you know, you guys have heard our interview with Meg. You know that she has good taste. So definitely recommend it. And we'll wrap the show with that. Today's episode of The Unmistakable Creative has been brought to you by Cells. That's S-E-L-Z dot com. Cells gives you the freedom to sell from any website quickly with no programming, no special templates or special themes needed while giving your customer a completely seamless experience. You've been listening to the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. Visit our website at unmistakablecreative.com and get access to over 400 interviews in our archives. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World, and this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.